morning. If you will turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Oh, we did put the Bibles away, didn't we? Huh. Between Haggai and Malachi, or as one of my friends at, at my first church said, hey guy! He's like, what, God couldn't remember his name? Hey, guy! Yeah. But yes, it's Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Lowly and riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortresses, you prisoners of hope. Even now I will announce that I will restore twice as much to you. And then we're also going to look at Matthew chapter 11, and we'll see how these two can kind of go together. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind will receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare a way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and law prophesy until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom has proved right by her deeds. 
Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All the things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. The first section we looked at from the book of Zechariah is a prophecy concerning Jesus. It's, it's concerning the Messianic king. Now, the book of Zechariah was written at a time when the nation, what was left of the nation of Judah, was coming back from exile. They had been carried off by the Babylonians, the last remnant of the kingdom of Israel, because they hadn't stayed true to the covenant of God. We've seen before studying the book of Romans that no matter how badly we go astray, it doesn't make God abandon his work in us. And God did not abandon his work in the nation of Israel. So even though they were sent into exile in Babylon, he had told them, I have a plan for you, I have a future for you. So you work for the prosperity, for the place that I'm taking you, because I still have a plan for you. Your unfaithfulness does not negate my faithfulness. So he had brought them back at the end of 70 years. He had brought Israel back from exile and reestablished them in Judah. And the prophet Zechariah was speaking to them about the reestablishment of the temple and, and the worship at the temple being reestablished in the land and talking about what was to come through that. And as part of that, we get this prophecy about what the, the coming messianic king will be like. Now, despite having this promise of what Messiah would be like, this wasn't what Israel was looking for at this time. At the time of Jesus, Israel is suffering under Roman occupation. And despite the word of the prophet, they're still looking for another king like David. They are looking for somebody who's going to come, he's going to rally the troops, and he's going to drive those nasty Romans out and cleanse the temple. And because they're expecting that, when the Lord starts doing the types of things the Lord has always done, they don't understand what's going on. So we begin this chapter with Jesus talking about the prophet John. John is in prison. John has been in prison because he called out the wickedness of Herod, who had taken his brother's wife which was a no-no under Jewish law, kind of a no-no in general, most places, maybe not in Alabama. Strike that. I didn't say that. 
I meant to say Louisiana. Nope, 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 nope. But anyway, that's, that's a bad thing. And John had called out Herod for it, and Herod had put him in prison. Herod is, in fact, going to eventually get himself into a bind because he is going to be caught by his own words and have to put John to death. So John, <clears throat> who kind of, who represents the prophetic tradition and the law up to that point, this is where his ministry is passing out, is fading out. And this is where the ministry of Jesus, this new, new era, this new way of God's kingdom is coming in. And these, we have the juxtaposition of the two here. And John is in prison and he sends his disciples, he say, sends them and says, ask, ask, are you the Messiah or should we wait for somebody else? And Jesus doesn't give him a simple yes or no. He says, tell him, tell him what you've seen. He said, you've seen people healing. You've seen the blind receive sight. You've seen lepers cleansed. These are the signs of the kingdom. The dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. These are the types of messianic signs that the prophets in the Old Testament had talked about. So when he's saying this to John, he's saying, what do you see? Trust Trust your eyes and trust what you know about Scripture. And he confronts the people. What were you looking at when you went to see John? Was this just a spectator show? Were you going because you really believed there was something going on with his ministry? Or did you just go to, to see a show? He says, I know you didn't go to see, like, the king's palace. That, that's in the city. You went out into the woods, but... What did you go to see? And he said, I'll tell you, that was, that was the greatest prophet. If you missed that, I don't know what to tell you, because that was the greatest prophet. But what's coming now is even greater than that. But when he's telling them this, there's something sort of implicit in that. You just saw the greatest prophet, and you didn't understand what was going on there. Now something greater is coming, and you're probably not going to understand that either. said, all the law, all the prophets, everything coming up to this was leading to this, and that was the culmination. You didn't, you didn't understand it. Then he says, I'm going to tell you what you're like. You're like children in the marketplace, calling out to passers-by. We played the pipe for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. It says, you're playing a game. This is, this is the life of the kingdom, and you're treating it as a game. John came, and he wasn't eating and drinking, and you said, that guy's got a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said... He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is a really loaded paragraph. This is like a baked potato with a lot of toppings. If you read it, when we read it, it just seems like, well... You know, obviously they're missing it, but they're saying something really deep here. John came, and John was preaching biblical repentance. 
And they attributed that to the work of a demon. They're saying, that's not God. That's demonic. That can't be God. And they said, and he says, and then you saw me, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Well, that doesn't sound good in English. You know, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Well, that sounds like you're saying he's a party boy. They're actually, that's actually a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. When God had established the nation of Israel and led them out of Egypt, they'd kind of lost the, lost the narrative for a little bit and ended up having to wander in the desert for 40 years while the generation that immediately came out of Egypt and turned their back on God passed away and a new generation came up. They wandered around in the desert for 40 years. And then God got ready to bring them into the promised land to carry on with the plan he had always intended. And before they went into the promised land, he re-summed up his codes and his law for them. That's the book of Deuteronomy is that second giving of the law. Well, in that giving of the law, he talks about things that will defile the nation of Israel. What are things that will lead them astray from God? One of the things, he says, that will lead them astray from God is if they let their children be rebellious. And so there are commandments in there. Some parents today might like some of these commandments. There is, in in, uh, Deuteronomy 22, there is a set of instructions to parents. They said, if your child is rebellious and he won't listen to you, you bring him to the gate of the city and you say, he's a drunkard and a glutton and won't listen to us. And everybody will stone him to death to keep that spiritual pollution of rebellion from spreading to the rest of Israel. So when Jesus said, you're saying I am a drunkard and a glutton, he's telling them, you're saying I'm not a true teacher, I'm a false prophet, I'm teaching rebellion, rebellion against parents, rebellion against tradition, and that I'm a danger to Israel and I should be put to death. It doesn't come across like that in the translation, but that is absolutely what Jesus is saying. Well, what's going on here is playing out two themes from Israel's ceremonial life in the Old Testament and and in the New, actually. You have two kinds of things. Well, you have many things, but there are two things that are part of the worship life of the community, fasting and feasting. When you fast, you are mourning what's wrong and you are preparing yourself for the presence of the Lord. When John came, John was the personification of that ministry of fasting. He called people to repentance. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming destruction? Then he told people, if you're really, really repentant, then produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. If you're a soldier, be content with your pay. Don't go around mugging people. Don't go around shaking them down for extra money. If you're a tax collector, only collect the taxes that are owed. Don't gouge more. This is exactly in line with what God has said in the Old Testament again and again about fasting. In the book of Isaiah, he'll say, you know, you're doing all these fasts for me, but I can't hear you because your heart's far from me. He says, if you really want to fast, this is what you do. You set captives at liberty. You take care of the widows and orphans and strangers. That's what a good fast is. Fasting involves that repentance. 
Well, that's the ministry of John. He's calling people to that repentance, preparing them for the presence of the Lord. Well, just like you have fasting in the Old Testament and in the New, you have feasting. And feasting is you're celebrating the presence of the Lord with you. This is why when the Pharisees come to Jesus' disciples and they'll say, hey, John and his disciples fast and we fast. Why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus said, hey, the, the guests of the bridegroom can't fast when the bridegroom is with them. It is appropriate to celebrate in the presence of the Lord. There is something good about the presence of the Lord. Where the presence of the Lord is, there's life, there's liberty, there is release from bondage, there is healing, there is the blind leaving, receiving sight. That's when, you, that's when you feast, that's when you celebrate. So there was an appropriate feast, fasting and an appropriate feasting element going on here. And the people of Israel missed it. They're just like, well, this is weird. This is out of step. That guy's demonic and that guy's a drunk. And they don't realize that this is the pulse of the kingdom of God going in amongst them. And then he says, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. This is the same kind of answer he gave to John's disciples. When John's disciples asked if he was the Messiah, if there's another one to come, he said, look at what's going on. What do you see? And now he's telling Israel, saying, wisdom's proved right by her deeds. You're saying that guy had a demon and that I'm a drunk, but what's going on? Do you see people being healed? Do you see people being liberated? Do you see people being restored to joy? Do you see tax collectors and sinners actually turning from their ways and coming into the kingdom? If you see all that, all right. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. It may not look like you thought it was going to look, but it looks like what it's supposed to look like. And if you don't recognize it, there's something wrong. And then he'll get, come on to start denouncing the towns and he'll tell, tell these towns, look, you know, if, if these pagan cities had seen what you did, they would repent. If Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what you did, they would have repented and not be destroyed. You're seeing this every day. And I don't think he's saying this dispassionately. These are his neighbors. These are the towns that he lived in growing up. And it's almost like he's, he's pleading with them. Why won't you see what's going on? This happened right amongst you. You yourselves have seen, you've seen paralytics get up. And all you can think to say is, well, that happened on the Sabbath. That can't be God. See people delivered from demons, and you're like, oh, well. He used demonic power to free those people from demons. How silly. But it's happening right amongst you, and you don't see it. And then he's going to wrap up the chapter, and he says... I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this is what you were pleased to do. There's kind of a cool contrast going on here in the original, in the original documents because he's just criticized them for being childish. And now he's going to praise people for being childlike. 
saying you were treating all this as a game. You treated what God gave you as like your little thing that was your little affair. And if people didn't line up with it, they were out of step with you. You treated it like a game. But you think you're wise. You think you're deep. People would study the Torah. They would search the scriptures. That's why Jesus will say, you search these scriptures because you think through them you have life, but these scriptures are telling you about me and I'm right here and you're not seeing it. He says, but you've revealed these things to little children. The Pharisees and the scribes and people that studied the law considered themselves to be the wise ones. They thought that they had true understanding And they would refer to the rest of the people as children, meaning they had no understanding. And it would carry a moral implication. It would be like, you guys don't even know grown-up business. You're you're not fit for the kingdom because you're just kids. And Jesus is saying, oh, by the way, those little kids, those tax collectors, those sinners, they're the ones that are coming and sitting with me and listening to me. And you, who think you're wise... You don't have time for me. All things have been committed to me by my Father. It says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. When you see Jesus, when you see the types of things he's doing, you are seeing what God does. You are seeing the nature of God. If this doesn't look like what you thought it did, That's because you misunderstood what God was doing and who God was. Because when you see Jesus, you're seeing God. And that's what makes the last part of this really important. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That gentle and humble is a direct reference to the lowliness that we read about in Zechariah when God said, behold, your king, your king comes seated on the colt of a donkey and he's lowly. He's not lording it over you. He's not establishing his power by force. That's not how the kingdom works now. And there's a number of little barbs in here. When he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, One of his main criticisms of the Pharisees was that they took the teachings of the law and they made them into burdens. He told the Pharisees, you load people up with burdens, using the same word, and you won't lift a finger to help them. Like, not only are you not doing what you're supposed to be doing, but you're making it harder for everybody else. You're coming up with rules upon rules upon rules and you're not helping them. And he's telling people that are under that system, it's like, look, if you're under those heavy burdens, come to me because I'm not like that. It's like, take my yoke upon you. Yoke is used many, many times in the Old Testament. It can refer to the control of God over a nation, which it is going to be here. It can refer to the power of a foreign nation over Israel. And there's always this notion that somebody's going to have you yoked. Bob Dylan has a song, you got to serve somebody. Everybody does. And it's like, you come to me. 
and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble. And he's saying, by the way, I just told you I'm the representation of God and I'm gentle and humble. That's God. I'm not here to crush you. I'm not here to keep you. I'm here to restore you. I'm here to bring you life. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Easy is not the best translation of the word there, which is, in Greek, it's krestos, which means fitting or kind. And fitting in terms of it fits well, not it's not going to rub you raw. It's kind. It's gentle. It says, following me is what you were made for. Now, I will tell you something from my first time in ministry many years ago. There are many wonderful promises in the, in the Bible, many things God says to us about how he is and how he loves us. Some of them are difficult to believe at times. If you've ever been in ministry, this is one of those verses where you go, really, God? Your yoke is easy and your burden is light? It's like, you know, I, I just got out of church. I've been dealing with people all week and I came home to my apartment and somebody from my congregation catches me at my front door. You're like, really, God? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You're like, yeah, come on, tell me what's going on. But it is. But why is that? Why is God's yoke easy and his burden light? Well, going back to the book of Zechariah, when God is encouraging his people about their coming back into the land and rebuilding the temple, he gives a vision to the prophet, and the prophet asks him about different parts of the, the vision, and he says, oh, what's that one thing? And God says, that is the word of the Lord, or his angel says, that's the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was from the royal line of Judah, and he was the governor who was bringing people back and who was going to help them get established in the land. And he's like, well, what's the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel? And the word of the Lord was, this isn't going to happen because of power or might. This isn't going to happen because of your strength or your effort. It's a classic verse most people know. Not by power or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Well, the reason his yoke is easy and his burden is light is because our job is just to make a place for the spirit and it's the Spirit's job to work all these things in us. Fasting is how you prepare for the presence of God. It is mourning what's wrong and what's broken in the world and making a place for God in your life. Celebration and feasting is accepting the presence of the Spirit in your life, of celebrating it. And we have that wonderful description of what that looks like in Galatians. What does it look like when you've got the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. If you see those things in operation, that is a very good indication that the Spirit of God is there. If you see the Spirit of God moving and it doesn't look like it's moving through the channels you always had ex expected it to do, if it doesn't fit your cultural lens, oh my gosh, those people raised their hands during the singing. That can't be of God. 
Did you see that place? There were women going in there who weren't wearing skirts. They were wearing pants. That's just cultural baggage. They don't sing hymns. They sing worship songs. That's cultural baggage. They don't sing worship songs. They sing 300-year-old hymns. That's cultural baggage. If you see something that fits what God says the fruit of the Spirit looks like, don't miss it because it's not the way you were expecting it. Because you might just find yourself being one of those childish people going, that's not the way we play the game. How come you won't play the game the way we like it? Well, God didn't call us to play games. He called us to serve him. And if we're serving him, it is easy and fitting and light. Oddly, it may still be difficult, but it is easy and fitting and light. Well, because we believe that's how God did things.